Ken Campbell. The Seekers Podcast. Walk about, snell, spit, day, long, day, long, last one, half one, long, everyone, something, corrupted, finish yet, time. Greetings, Seekers, and uh, hilarious. Welcome to Ken Campbell, the Seekers podcast, hosted by me, Daisy Campbell, Ken's daughter, and David Bramwell. So, Daisy, part one of Mr. Bruises ended with the bonga 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 story. The bonga bonga story, which I absolutely love that story. And I believe that's absolutely 100% true. This show kind of came about around the Channel 4 series that you made, Brain Spotting. No, there were two. So the first one was Reality on the Rocks. And this, and so Reality on the Rocks was much more um, the physics one. So that's where he interviewed Stephen Hawking, David Deutsch, um, and these guys. Uh, and, and, and Mystery Bruises was the show that uh, he kind of did, yes... He sort of got so interested in the people he was interviewing that by the time they were releasing the um, the series on Channel 4, he'd also put together his own one-man show, which was uh, handy and, and for, for him rather rather savvy, I imagine. Yeah. Um, and, um, and then he did another, um, I think also three-parter for Channel 4 with the same guys called Brain Spotting. And that was the, that was the one where he was interviewing more sort of philosophers and looking at the question of what is a self and these kind of questions, which also were a big preoccupation of his even long before that as well. He he gave the impression of never being too enamoured with TV as an art form. Or, or, am I wrong about that? Yeah, no, he got seriously enamoured with the whole idea that TV, and particularly TV news, is a potent brainwashing technique. And, you know, of course, it's the cathar rays that come out of the TV. So that's why he set himself up with a projector. That's why he had his amazing projector set up, because projection doesn't produce cathar rays in the same way. Um, so that's all right. I remember in one of his shows, he talks about supposedly being put on some blacklist for adverts because he'd done a Kit Kat advert and back in the 70s. And the sales... No, it wasn't the 70s. No, I grew... I, it was um, mid-80s and he was the... him. The devil. Yeah, he was the devil. And, and, um, no. and they both come out of a lift, so the devil coming up from hell and the angel coming down from heaven and share a Kit Kat. And it, and it won an awards <laughs> and it was really, you know, for me growing up, that was what everyone knew my dad for. Like, the kids in the playground were like, oh, is, your, is your dad the devil in the Kit Kat? But like, yeah, yeah. And I think it probably shaped some of my psyche, the fact that, you know, this image of him mm. fully done out as a proper kind of devil. Um, and, um, yeah, no, and it won awards and was considered a really brilliant advert, but Kit Kat sales went down. <laughs> and and uh, and this wasn't the first time that it happened. He'd also been in... I think an opal fruit advert playing a tube of opal fruits and saying, oh, doctor, I just feel so chewy or something, <laughs> or some awful thing. And again, you know, opal fruit sales have plummeted. And, but he turned it all around with the citron adverts that he very yeah. proudly would tell me, I've sold more citrons than Claudia Schiffer. That was his great. He was very pleased about that. <laughs> um, so do you want to introduce the uh, second part? Yeah, so here we have Mystery Bruises, part two. Yeah, anyway, uh, so I, uh, I, di- I didn't get the job at Watford. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, did, um, I did get to play Angus. It's on a later occasion, about 1967, I played Angus um, in a, a, the Colchester Repertory Company. Yeah, it was. Um, I was doing a method production of Macbeth. And they've got this uh, Canadian director to direct, a fellow called Bill Dublin. Well, a Canadian uh, Macbeth as well, a fellow called David Caldrissi, who's a Weasley actor. And um, um, anyway, the method production, it was all a novelty for me, and it was actually. Uh, I, you have to be there, everyone's got to be there for the first read through. And then your director, well, Bill Dublin, says, well, it's a method production, you see. So in, in a method production, the small parts are of equal significance to the big parts. Hey, man, that's good news if you're playing Angus. <laughs> also, you've got to live your part, you see. You have to live it. Uh, this uh, goes a bit against the grain in the British acting tradition, really. 
Because really what we like to do is to look uh, very <laughs> serious about what we're doing, but secretly be going, whoops, ducky, with your colleague. Um, <laughs> anyway, then um, another model is that um, on the Monday, um, you know, like the last Monday, the dress rehearsal, and then it's going to open in the evening, then those with the, um, the, the larger roles have to have written an essay on their part. Anyway, so putting it. Uh, no, no, this for me, because we were just looking at a, a tattoo magazine. Anyway, they write quite a, <laughs> like a, a small essay on their part. Um, <laughs> anyway, at the end of that, which uh, is a bit embarrassing, um, I said, oh, I, I said, weren't we all meant to write one? And uh, Bill Dublet said, do you one can? I said, of course I've written one. I said, you said the small parts were of equal significance to the big ones. Of course I have. Oh, I said, oh, I see yours then. See, mine went like this. I said, um, so often in productions of Macbeth, the part of Angus gets overlooked. <laughs> Angus makes his first entrance in Act 1, Scene 2. His cue is King Duncan's Who Comes Here? Then says the stage direction, Enter Ross and Angus. In answer to King Duncan's query, Malcolm replies, The worthy thing of Ross. No mention is made of any reference. Nor does anyone speak to him, nor does he say anything in that scene. Are they, are they rudely ignoring him? If so, why? Has he committed some social gaffe? <laughs> Have they maybe not seen him? <laughs> is, he, is he a dwarf? <laughs> he, make, he makes his next entrance in um, Act 1, Scene 3, again in company with Ross. Uh, they're bringing news to Macbeth here, um, and Angus speaks. In fact, he uses up nine and a half of his allotted 18 lines. <laughs> uh, Macbeth acknowledges him. Thanks for your pains, he says. So, I, either Macbeth is prepared to overlook this social gaffe, or... Listen, they're bringing news of new titles are going to be heaped on Macbeth now, and so, logically, Macbeth's head would be modestly bowed at that moment, and so he would be likely to see the little fellow, <laughs> <laughs> however small. Uh, well, uh, he makes his uh, next entrance in... Uh, Act 1, scene 6. Enter King Duncan, Malcolm, Donald, Bain, 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 Macduff, Ross, Angus, and attendants. <laughs> Well, sadly, Angus seems to have gone back into his shell here. Yeah. <laughs> do, we, do we take Banquo's line to refer to Angus? Banquo says, I have observed the air is delicate. <laughs> uh, a reference to Angus? Um, certainly, Angus seems to take offence. Angus is to be found nowhere in the forest Dunsinane area for the next 110 pages. <laughs> he, he doesn't even turn up for the banquet. Um, the last we see of Angus um, is in Act 5, Scene 2. The call to arms. Now everyone's, got, everyone's to fight the tyrant. And uh, Angus, nobody forgetting his former squabbles, has joined up. He's made two very nice friends, Mentef and Katniss. And he lavishes his remaining eight and a half lines on them. Um, a couple of them may be of uh, interest. Um, Angus says, speaking of Macbeth, he says, Now does he feel his secret murders sticking on his hands. Murders, you see, trouble with his deeds. Um, but nowhere else. Nowhere else. So that kind of stress. Murders sticking on his hands. Um, the next line is interesting if you attempt to live it. Um, now, minutely, revolts upbraid his faith breach. He concludes with. Um, he concludes with. Now does he feel his title hang loose about him like a giant's robe upon a dwarfish thief. Or maybe it may better say, now does he feel his title hang loose about him like a giant's robe upon a dwarfish thief. Because they've joined up quickly, haven't they? They've got some of the old uniform, little angles. we see of Angus is quietly dressing up as a tree with the other boys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in Angus's case, presumably a bonsai. <laughs> anyway, what's interesting was that my, uh, my essay uh, had a bigger impact on the production than anyone else's, actually. Um, Angus is sort of generally sort of just lurking around at the bottom of the staircase with the attendants, you see. Well, I mean, meanwhile, there's an important thing. Lots are being hatched up on top of the staircase, you see. And so, like, to show that we're not over here, uh, what they're saying, we have to have our own little quieter life down bottom. <laughs> <laughs> they're going, you see. And um, it actually used to go, oh, oh, it's that smelly dwarf again. <laughs> and they go, 
and 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 tenants are sort of camp up on the other side of me. Oh, Christ, yeah. And when when we uh, we bring the news to Macbeth, me and Ross, um, uh, I suddenly realised where where we were in in the in the in the piece. You see. Um, because Macbeth wants to know about how the war with Norway is going. I was quite curious this, it was the first night, I didn't realise we were at war with Norway. Anyway, we've been given swords now. We hadn't had them for the dress rehearsal, but been in the late, they're now being red starred up. So we got, the, we got these swords. And, and I realised where we were, I'd just seen that Japanese movie, Throne of Blood. You know, which is the, the Japanese version of Macbeth. And they're rather good in that bit. When Toshiro Mifuni, you know, wants to know how the war with Norway is going, they go, and they, and they draw it in the sand for them with their swords. Well, I've got that. So, right, right when well, Norway going. So, so, and um, I'll tell you something else of interest as well. I, um, <laughs> was, um, we've been. Um, there's been a lot of talk, and you know, people got rather interested in my research into Angus. I see, it's rather curious about Angus, actually. Everyone else is known by their second name mainly, you know, like Macbeth. What's his first name? Jim Macbeth. Well, I don't know. Ronnie, Ronnie Macduff. We wouldn't know, you know. But then Angus, you know, he's only known by his first name, it's Angus. And, and, but, but, but nobody ever says it. So you wouldn't know there was an Angus in the play unless you read it. You see, so, well, this is funny, isn't it? Why, why don't they, you know, why do that? And they say, well, of course you can't say Angus. In, in, in Macbeth, in Macbeth, a real grim old piece, you know, and Angus is a funny name. Angus, you get a laugh in the wrong place, you'd never wreck it, wouldn't it? So that's why they don't say his name. It's like, yeah, that's very daft as well, isn't it? No, no, well, it, what, what it probably is, it's Shakespeare's part. Because Shakespeare, it's like saying the world, it's sort of like a Hitchcock, wouldn't he? You see, so that's probably his part, you see, that's, that's the whole thing. And so, so evidently, um, uh, Shakespeare was a really, really little guy. And so, uh, so what I've done, uh, for the first night, I made up as Shakespeare. You know, they had quite a wacky look to it because they couldn't afford the um, regular costumes. And so what they'd done is they'd uh, bought a job lot of old fur coats. And then it was, so it was like a sort of Stone Age version. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a curious moment in Scottish history when uh, they got really good swords, very good at swords, and, uh, and, and staircases as well. I mean, not nice staircases they could do, but they, they hadn't come up with a kilt yet. Anyway, so. Anyway, Macbeth was in a, you know, how the war with Norway is going. Right, and I'm with his sword. And Macbeth went, whoa! And he hit me in the head. I was just going to draw it for you in the sand. And Macbeth came some sheepishly limping. Oh, it was marvellous. And from that moment on, the whole production Hell, you know, like, 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 like dominoes. Oh, there was a moment halfway through it, it's so terrific. Uh, everyone saw it. The, the, the roof of the theatre lifted off, and we saw, and we saw the laughing fat men in the sky. And, um, and when it got to the end, Macduff lost grip. I, I mean, literally, I mean, this has happened to me, this happened to most people. You know, when you get, get really silly. Really silly. And then you, you, you actually you lose you, you lose all grip. There, you know, you like you wouldn't be able to do anything like like trying to shoot like that. Because you're going silly, you're masculinely silly. And then, and anyway, that, anyway, Macduff couldn't couldn't hold his sword. And um, and so uh, so Macbeth had to run himself through. <laughs> 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 Great night, legendary night. And um, sad, sad to say, many years later, I did get to have um, a, a big role in a classic. It wasn't a Shakespeare one, it was by his contemporary, I don't know his name, Ben Johnson. It was not even play, it was Ben Johnson's Comedy, uh, The Alchemist. Yeah, comedy, you say, because if it's by Ben Johnson, for some reason you spell it C O M E D I E. It's a comedy, and it's a comedy, The Alchemist. And I was the alchemist, and um, it's a funny piece. It, well, not funny. That's a funny thing about it. It's about, it's about three, three and a half hours long, and the plot's really quite good. But the way he writes his lines is sort of odd. I mean, because you know, everyone knows this. You know, like a comedy line goes da 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 da. Ping. It's a ping. Oh, I mean, but he pings right at the beginning. I mean, Johnson like a ping da 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 da. Yeah, right. And then, anyway, so I'm like, if you really work hard, you can get 20 laughs out of three and a half hours. <laughs> Obviously, it was the last night, 
And I was, um, and I was on stage and I was thinking, well, man, this is shaming, isn't it? That you can't get more laughs out of a comedy than you can out of Macbeth. <laughs> anyway, I'd done, I'd done my first speech and I'd, got, I'd, had, I'd had a titter. There had not been a titter before. I thought, right, I'm going to work on that titter. And I was like trying to summon in strange forces. Okay, let's go for it. And I've got a marvellous fart building up, a real bigger, like that. And I'm quite a pro with things like that. So, so I was really holding on to it. I don't want to waste it. I'm trying to get this off. And I thought, I know, when Nicholas from Prevo's Captain Face comes on, he, he always paused after his second line. So I let it off then, eh? it might work on a titter, but more than point, it might get Nicholas a bit tittery, you know what I mean? Some sort of uh, night might be got. And, uh, but then, then I was aware that I was not alone on the stage. There was um, an angel there, you know, like a, uh, you know, like a regular one with um, feathery wings and everything. And had, um, had an order of clipboard with him, and, 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 and I thought, oh, looking gadget. Anyway, the, um, the agent, angel had come to take me off the list. Uh, you noticed you that, that uh, acting in the drama is a, um, it's a calling, you see? And the um, angel had come to um, call me in. <laughs> you know, I'm in number 14, time's up now. And he had just come to take me off the list. And um, I said, I was going to say, great time to choose. I said, I said, it was at last night, you know. I said, you might as well let me uh, you know, get through this. And then, you know, if you want, I went around again. I wasn't all that fussed, actually. And the um, angel said, no, I've got to take you off right now. Great. And, uh, and then uh, then uh, he came over with this um, gadget thing, and then he, he uh, siphoned away my fart bubble by bubble, and um, sat, sang a hymn and departed. And you know, you know that from, uh, from our perspective, the spe that space-time seems continuous. Um, but, but from the... From Quantum mechanically, that's not so. From the quantum mechanical viewpoint, from the quantum viewpoint, it was called spongy and wormhole. And it's probably up through, up through these wormholes in the space time continuum that angels of the light uh, come. That's only a theory. <laughs> <laughs> but I can, I, can, I can tell you what it's like um, to be taken off the list. It, it's that you're clear. It's like, you're clear. And you can see the audience, you can see how the scene is constructed, you know who you are, you know that you're Kenneth and you're in Ben Johnson's comedy, The Alchemist, you play The Alchemist. And there's the people in Nottingham down there. You know what happened in a moment as well. There's a colleague of yours all, uh, all, all come on, you know, quaintly painted, talking an order of gibberish for about that long. And, and then uh, you'll be expected to reply in like mode. The problem is, can you think what you say at that moment? No, not at all, actually. But do you think you might know what to say after he's come and said it? Yeah, it's possible, yeah. You see, the last thing you need if you're playing those big parts is clarity. Clarity is fatal. I think you have to be in a trance, probably like 80% trance, I think, you know, to do those things. You know, you just don't want to be clear. Anyway, he, he came on, blah, 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 and, and uh, we got, got to the end, it was my turn, I thought, well, do you know what to say? No, no idea. Is there anything Kenneth you'd like to say to this man at all, on any subject? No, no. Anything you'd like to say to the good people of Nottingham? No. Well, probably make your apologies and call an end to that. Then with my eyes closed, it was like I could set through the script somewhere. You know, it was like in a, in, in, in a dream. And I was like, oh yeah, in, that, in a drawer there. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, and of course it was very smoky, uh, very foggy. Uh, but I could sort of, with my eyes closed, I could read a script in my mind's eye, but very limpingly, only bits of it actually. Whoa. Um, and then the fat man came on and he wasn't funny, and the tall man came on and he wasn't funny um, either, and it's my go again. Uh, like that. Oh, gee, and I, I, I feel, I mean, I decided to suppose that, you know, the god of my childhood, you know, a nice old geezer, sort of Father Christmas chap with dressing gown, open work sandals, and no socks. Oh, <laughs> oh I can't get a hand there, you know, he's off doing his work, something like that. And you really know how long three and a half hours is, actually, if you, know, if you live it instant by instant like that. You know, through it. And at the bowing, in quite thick clothes we wore, thick costume, and mine was wet through. Anyway, anyway after that, I never um, acted again in any live drama or comedy. Um, absolutely not. But about um, five weeks later, though, the, um, the angel came back and said, um, small parts in TV and films is all right. <laughs> <laughs> This is years ago, you know, this was, and, and I was at a party and I was telling someone about my angel 
And uh, this really nice chap came over, I've not met him before, and um, he said, oh, he said, I couldn't help overhearing about your angel. He said, the angel came for me, you know. I said, really? And it was Ian Home, and the um, angel apparently came for him uh, when he was in the Iceland coming, playing uh, Hickey. Uh, but in his case, he, really, he wasn't able to see any, you know, like, uh, scripts in drawers, and he had to have the understudy came on, and he didn't, he didn't uh, act in my stuff again. But he came back very courageously. He, uh, he did, didn't he? Last year, he was in boxing pauses or something like that. Like, 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 It was a worthwhile profession, you know. I mean, for who? For you? For, for the, for, well, not for you, but for the seekers, you know. Uh, and I had to open some doors for them, you know. It seemed, it seemed to me that in the face of um, a lazy, frightened, ignorant establishment, uh, that there should be somebody, you know, that's like, come along and see her. Then they shine some light up this corridor, you know. You dare come in, we could go in there, you know. And, and that sort of thing. But I mean, eight years really out here. I mean, I suppose so far. I was beginning to think that I'd probably suppose myself into a suppository. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, fearing the final step, I, 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 mean, I was saved by the bell, the telephone rang, <clears throat> and it was Windfall Films, evidently um, uh, an outfit who make documentaries now for the, for the TV. And they, they heard me talking about supposing. And they said, they said, uh, they said okay, do, you know, do you know what you're supposed to suppose? He said, "What?" He said, "Well, in, in science, for example, do you know what scientists are telling us that you should, you're, you're supposed to suppose now?" I said, "Well, no, not really. I said, I'm not bothered with it." I said, "I mean, I'm into pseudoscience, crank science, uh, you know, science fiction stuff like that." I said, "I always suppose that if you need to know what you're supposed to suppose, I mean, you've got to ring anyone up, haven't you? I mean, that's all part of the university sausage machine, isn't it?" Um, well, they said, well, I'm not actually, you know, pretty certain that you're right. They said, well, in any event, would I like to go around interviewing top-line scientists for a programme, you know, and then the, the, the viewer could get educated uh, uh, along with me. And I thought, I thought, yeah, I think that's what I do want to do. Yeah, I'd like to find out. I said, yeah, I'm very keen. I'd like to, I'm, I'm very keen to know what you're supposed to suppose. Why not? Uh, you know. Yeah, okay, anyway, so, so we set off, and um, the, the second one is called Reality on the Rocks. Anyway, nearly missed it all now, because it was, uh, there's only three, three episodes to it, and two have gone out. They go out at 8 o'clock um, Sundays on Channel 4. Anyway, I don't want to whip through, whip through it, because it's only the last bit, which is of great significance, the one and all. Anyway, but I want everyone to catch up with their science. Now, okay, you knew this, everyone knew this, didn't you? There was nothing. There was absolutely nothing, then there was a fault. There was a fault in the grand celestial bugger all. There was this, uh, this fault occurred. It was smaller than the head of a pin. In fact, it was so small, it had no dimension. Blimey. And anyway, and this dimensionless thing got so hot and so heavy, it had to go kaboom! And it, and it blasted out, and that's the big bang, and it was 19 billion years ago. Boom! And that's our, that's our universe. Boom! And it's an expanding universe. If you want to know how big the universe is, I'll tell you how to work it out. Well, um, it's 19 billion years times the speed of light, the fastest thing we know about times two, because it went off in, in both directions. That will give you the width. All right. Um, <laughs> well, when we say, let's say, say light being the fastest thing, uh, there are, of course, tachyons, but, but they cheat, don't they? So, but we'll come, we'll come to tachyons later. Um, uh, and also, um, I learned that um, space is curved, Ken, and, uh, and time is curved. Would you believe? Time is curved. Yeah. Uh, to me, that was a bit like when um, T.S. Eliot said, um, April is the cruelest month. It's <laughs> 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 a, a bit difficult to find anything you can do with the information. <laughs> 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 
Anyway, if you ask a scientist, um, uh, I'm run of the mill, I'm run of the mill. If you ask a scientist, um, but what was before the Big Bang then? You know, what happened before it? They say, you can't ask what happened before it because time began with the Big Bang. That's how Stephen Hawking could write his book, Brief History of Time, you see, because time begins, we're inside time. Uh, 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 and you can't roll that. Well, I said, oh, I said, it seems to me I can. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, 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 it's like hitting the end of, on, on the brick wall. Boom. What else did I do? Oh, yeah, we, we, we looked at galaxies. It was interesting. People who look at galaxies come from Romford, Dagenham, or Wilford. Oh, yeah, then, you saw on the, on the Canary Islands, high up on a mountain, um, multinational observatories. Uh, they have lots of observatories. You know, there are lots of nations that built their observatories up there. But all we've done is we've said Bob. And um, Bob listens to the echo of the Big Bang. And he does this through like, like a sort of graphophone horn thing. About that big. And um, it doesn't look all that impressive, actually. I said, I said, how much is one of these, then? He said, oh, about uh, 10 grand. Anyway, says Bob, acting naturally for the camera. He said, well, it's actually, shall we go in and listen to some of my recordings on the and I said, oh, this is nice, they've given you a shed and everything. And, um, anyway, he bought some shed, he put, put, put a pile of cassettes there, this thing. And uh, he put one on, uh, the Echo of the Big Bang, and it sounds like this. <laughs> I said, it sounds, um, it sounds a bit like when you haven't found the station you're looking for on the radio. He said, well, that is the Echo of the Big Bang, too. Which is think of the minis for a moment, it would be as if 
when the minis collided, out of the collision bleh, came a vehicle transporter, bleh, a, a Panzer tank, bleh, a Rolls Royce, a Bentley, you know, a Jaguar car. You know, bleh, bleh. What I'm saying is new matter is formed with this subatomic particle collision. They collide. Bleh, bleh, bleh. New matter is formed. It's not actually formed from the subatomic particles because the subatomic particle geezers carry on to live their subatomic particle life. Right. So where's this new matter come from? Well, it's come from the energy. Because they're waist round uh, these uh, subatomic particles at the speed of approaching that of light. And it's, it comes from, comes from the energy. Energy is formed into, into matter. But this is new matter, new matter to our universe. Well, what we mean is this is a matter of a sort which has not been in the universe before. We really knew of, of a new sort. And each one is different from, every, from each other one. Except some say, oh yeah, no, it has been in the universe before, this, uh, this sort of matter. But it was a long time ago, it was 19 billion years ago. It's in the second, in fact, it was in the first second of the Big Bang, maybe. It was, um, it, it was there, maybe. Uh, anyway, here it is, back again at CERN. And um, the thing is, that a load, all the scientists now, I see, um, are carrying around Finnegan's Wake. James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake. Because a lot of times now, um, they, they give the Nobel Prize not to the person who found something, but the person who gives it a really wacky name. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, like quarks. The, uh, that, that fellow got the Nobel Prize for quarks. He didn't find them, he called them quarks. That's what he did, he found it in Finnegan's Wake. Three quarks for Mr. Marks. The guy who found them, found them, was Murray Girl Man, and he called them aces. But the thing was, that fuck off the name, because there, there, um, because there were only three quarks. There were only three quarks at that time, and he called them aces. That's about it. Anyway, they've been wrazzing these things together for 30 years now, I see, all this new matter. So, I mean, you suppose if you, you know, come here with windfall films and a camera, that you'll be shown into the back room now. They must have a jam jar full of stuff, at least by now. Uh, but sadly, no. Uh, sadly, this stuff is, uh, is very small, actually, and it only lasts for a few instances of time. Indeed, you wouldn't have known it had been there at all if you hadn't taken the trouble to build yourself a, a computer rather larger than Westminster Abbey. I mean, man, this is underground. It's an enormous thing. And you know, I mean, I don't think of computers now as having wire in them, really. You know, they work on some other principle, don't they? And, and, and why? This has got wire. It's got cabling going around it. As a matter of fact, it looks like several pompidou centres, this thing. And, and you say, well, does it have to be so big because, you know, you're only using old-fashioned tech Technology. And they say no. They say no. This, and they come from all over the world, these people at CERN. They've all got the same grin around them. <laughs> it's all absolutely up to the bar. <laughs> anyway, the, um, the, the, the chap who runs the big um, uh, particle wazzing experiment is a fellow called Signor Amaldi. And um, Signor Amaldi. Uh, was prepared to talk about before the Big Bang. He said, uh, he said, before the Big Bang, he said there wasn't nothing. He said there were fields. He said, what are you thinking of? I said, well, I, I don't know, I was sort of thinking of cows and... No, 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 he said, he said, fields of potential. Anyway, evidently it was into these fields of potential. Right, that the, the, you know, it feels like some field of potential. It's It blasted out in fields of potential, you see. Um, he said, how many fields of potential would you think there were? Uh, I said, what, 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 I don't know. I said, countless billions. <laughs> 37. <laughs> <laughs> I said, we're, we're sure about this, are we? I said, you know, not, not 36. He said, well, that's a good question. He said, no, not 36. He said, there might be a few more than 37. He said, all I'm saying is, you couldn't do a universe like ours with less than 37 Which the most significant for us. I mean, I mean we, 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 we wouldn't be here tonight. Um, the lady wouldn't be there. The handkerchief wouldn't be there. If it wasn't for Field 37. That's the one, that's the one to remember. Field 37. Thank you, 30, Field 37. We wouldn't be here. Uh, uh, because when you think about it, why, when this fault occurred, uh, and, and it but, why wasn't it all just energy or light, you know, photons and stuff? What was it that hooked some of this energy, caught it, right? Curled it into matter. Made it matter. Field 37, to be honest Field 37, also known as Higgs's field. Professor Higgs of Edinburgh found it. Found it. Well, it's really close on. Anyway, no, said um, Signor Amaldi. He said, he said, for most of us now, the experiment is not about the particles. 
It's about the nothing in the tube. Really? I said, uh, I said, uh, do you know about the cathars? <laughs> no, I said, you said you didn't. Anyway, I could, I could suppose all that. Any problems with that? I suppose, yeah. I mean, maybe to be sure some of it's unlikely. I mean, it sounds a bit unlikely, but everything's unlikely, isn't it? If you've got the courage, everything's unlikely. Did you know that? I mean, I mean if, you, if, you know, if you know the right line of questioning, you're going to utterly freak someone out with a cup of tea, actually. <laughs> <laughs> there, was, there was a guy from the young Romford Comprehensive, he's head of the art department, Romford Comprehensive. And I see him completely up the pictures, and it just by asking him that, that set of questions about his trousers, you know. Ugh! He still has to have All I'm saying is, I could suppose it. The men are nothing, I could suppose. But I, I, the, what I want to tell you about is a range of great problems with the men of next to nothing. <laughs> now, to, meet, um, to meet one of the very top men of next to nothing, you've got to go to Oxford, and his name is Dr. David Deutsch. And he's got another 13, we're calling in on him on his home, at his home. He's got number 13 on the gatepost, number 19 on the door. <laughs> and, um, anyway, the notion, notion was that we... It was just to go and interview him, you know, no, no preamble, not, not Dr. David Deutsch, and then the camera was going, I mean, it's been set up, of course, but I've not met him before, and the camera was meant to follow me in and into his living room where he worked for what. And, uh, anyway, <laughs> Dr. David Deutsch, yeah, and he's a really nice guy with uh, sort of, quite sort of longish hair. And like, I used to breed ferrets, and, and you get a freak, every so often you get a freak-friendly ferret. You know, it's all the purposes for which you breed them, of course, but it is like a friendly ferret. Uh, and um, anyway, Dr. David Deutsch, yeah. And then, but then we couldn't get in. I mean, I could just about get in through his door, but certainly not the camera, because you know those free newspapers you get with all the ads in? He got about ten years' worth behind the door that he'd never picked up. Anyway, I mean, I was out of weight for them. I had to hunt them all out of the way. Take two, Dr. David Deutsch, yes. Anyway, then we went into his um, living and work. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I mean, I, I mean my, my place uh, isn't tidy, to put it in my bed. Like, nothing like this. I mean, this is like sort of being a skip. <laughs> 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 I, mean, I mean, it wasn't by any means all the scientific stuff. I mean, I, you know, the nonsense was just sort of crap. You know, maybe little old pizza on top of a crisp packet and all the things like that. Really, muck a mess. And um, anyway, he was um, offering me this uh, chair. I thought, well, like, you know, probably wouldn't catch anything. So, and uh, but I mean, there's always like you don't know what's important or what. <laughs> it's sort of kicking your way. Comes <laughs> 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 Anyway, our director, our director was very excited with all the crap. <laughs> you know, he was whispering to the um, cameraman, saying, "Get, get cutaways, all the crap." Because <laughs> that, that, you know, that's what makes good television. It's, you know, you cut away some crap. That's how you get, get awards, you say. It's, it's, it's not really good interviews, is it? Cut away some crap. <laughs> but that's, that's only in the West. It's, it's not universal because, I know this, because um, uh, three weeks before, you had the Japanese. The Japanese um, had come to find the apparatus in the quantum mechanical arena. And, um, and um, they played them about a bit and said, uh, uh, Doctor, uh, can we, can we uh, clear out the place for the interview? And um, Dr. Dr. said, no, well, yeah, certainly. He said, but um, you've got to put everything back exactly where it is. <laughs> and so the Japanese had to spend an extra day there. And they had a Polaroid and grid it. <laughs> he really meant it. No, no, the old piece goes on top of the crisp packet. <laughs> what a hero, mate. <laughs> And um, anyway, they, they'd, um, they'd, they'd given me this to read uh, before I, I met him. It's an article in the Scientific American. Uh, the quantum physics of time travel. Common sense may rule out such excursions, but the laws of physics do not. Uh, by David Deutsch and Michael Lockwood, you see? Common physics of time travel. Any, any, anyway, uh, you, know, you know the, the problems of time travel? I mean, the conundrum of it. You know how to time travel. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, lady. I'll, I'll, I'll just catch up, seekers. Okay, but um, right, but, just close your eyes. Close your eyes. Do you want to do it too? You can do it too. Right, but send you both off. Okay, time travel. Time travel. Close your eyes. Now, I, I want you to think. Uh, well, it's something about an image that you can both probably share. Um, the, the McDonald's clown. You know the McDonald's clown. Yeah. Well, okay, but this, but this is a way to get the McDonald's clown clearly in mind. Image on it. Yeah, is it coming? 
Good. Okay. Now we'll get what well, hang on to that. Right, you keep it. And then now get rid of it. Now it's not so easy to do that, you know, it'll sort of come and go, come and go, come and go a bit. But then finally when they've completely got rid of the McDonald clown image from their minds, they will find that they have travelled a little way into the future. But they will have done so at approximately the same speed as the rest of us. <laughs> See, what we mean by time travel is cheating. You know, they want to be hugely ahead of everyone else, or go backwards. Now, the thing about going backwards is it is tricky. Because what happens if you go backwards, for example, and you meet your grandfather, right? Go back in time, you meet your grandfather before he met your grandmother, yeah? And you just can't resist it. I mean, there's the meat cleaver. And you get it, and kaboom, right? You split the feather in twain. But what's going to happen to you? Because logically, then, you won't get born, so you can't have gone back. I mean, what happens then? You know, is it, what, is it that you can't do it? Or do you blink out, or what? Well, because well, what Dr. Deutsch says is that's nonsense. He said, he, said, so, he said, you can't travel backwards in time in your own universe. But uh, there'll be another universe so similar to this one that you really wouldn't know the difference. And, and you can travel back in that one, you know, with your photo of your grandfather when he was 17 and meet him. And you can do what the hell you want with him. It just simply becomes that is the universe in which you do that, you see. That sounds muddy, but the, the article comes with a very easy to follow. <laughs> Anyway, so I said, I see, David, from this article, uh, that you think there's more than one universe. I said, yes, absolutely. I said, well, that's a, if I've got it right, every time I make a decision in my life, you know, like, like my granny might be dying, you know, and I think, well, I must go and visit granny. And I think, actually, no, I'm going to go to that new wine bar. There's going to be one universe in which I go to meet grannies and another universe in which I go to the wine bar. He said, yes, that's right, you've got it. And I said, that goes for everybody in the world. Yeah. Everybody that ever has been or ever will be, yes. I said, well, it seems to me that sometimes um, dogs and cats make decisions. He said, he thought so too. I said, well, I mean, every decision every dog or cat makes, yeah. I said, I used to breed ferrets, you know. I said, I mean, that man there, there is a decision-making animal, if you like. Yeah, I said, I said, well, how far are we going to go on this then, David? I said, nuts. I said, let's just take, like, let's take one individual gnat in a swarm of gnats, you know? Maybe, I mean, this gnat is going, uh, shall I buzz there or buzz there? You know, like, oh, right, yeah, yeah, gnats. I said, what, well, are atoms? I said, are atoms decision-making things? Yes. Now, I, I, I knew some uh, words. I said, um, quarks. Now, I mean, quarks are extremely small pieces of dick. Quarks, yeah, quarks are, you might say, the uh, aliases of the quantum mechanics. <laughs> <laughs> I said, uh, quarks? Yes. Yeah, right. So, blimey, do you I mean, hear me, what are you saying? There, there, there are universes, at least to this number, there, the universe is not merely to the number of quarks that make up our universe, but to the number of decisions that these reading things make, and that's from 19 billion years ago. You're right to the uh, end of the universe. Incidentally, the universe is expanding. It may expand on forever, in which case uh, it'll get very cold. Or, or it might get to some point, and it'll start going back into that point again, in which case time will go backwards there. And see, so you'll be sitting on the toilet, the pill will go up your bum, you'll <laughs> You ask lady, you'll cough up a neat looking breakfast. Anyway, um, that's, how, uh, that's, um, uh, that's how that'll be. Anyway, but, but um, that's that number of universes, but few. Uh, but he said he wouldn't stop there. He, um, he said um, he said he would regard every instant of time as a separate universe. And by instant of time, he told me he meant the smallest parcel of time that you can have. You say, it's funny about talking, that's how you talk. Parcels, what? Parcels of time that you can have. Now, the parcels of time, or the instances of time, aren't linked to each other. They aren't joined together. In fact, it's um, an on-off, on-off, on-off um, business, the universe, and, 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 and we are too. It's like we're, we're here, not here, here, not here, here, not here, here, not here. I know it looks like we're here all the time, because we only know about it when we're here. You see, we go, here, 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 here. We don't know about the not here, bro. No, no, because we're not here. You see? It's just an illusion. It's a bit like a film. Anyway, so the instances of time aren't formally linked. What's holding them together are tachyons. Tachyons are backward time-travelling particles. 
um, it, it may be called tachyons because they tack together the instances of time. Right? So if something could unping, unclip the tachyons of time, then all the instances of time would just fall apart in the years and, and, and slip away from each other. So you see, our universe is currently composed of particles which haven't got here yet and is in a, a state of depletion by particles which haven't yet gone. I said, I'm telling you, this makes really any sense. <laughs> he said, no, it doesn't. He said, he said uh, quantum mechanics tells us that it's all up now for common sense. He said, if you, he said, if you meet anyone who claims to understand quantum mechanics, they haven't understood it. <laughs> 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 yeah, I said, is there any proof of this? Well, he said, yes. Uh, he says, oh, it's got a lot of proof. Um, it's the one we usually trot out. He said, it's the uh, twin slit experiment. You know about this, Steve, with the, the, the slits? No? Yeah, well, you, 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 do a, you, put, you put a board up, right? you've got slit A and slit B, and then you fire one photon of light. A photon, and one photon is the smallest parcel of light that you can have, right? And you fire, ping, this photon of light that's slit A and slit B. Now, faced with the decision of should it go through slit A or slit B, the, the photon goes through both. Well, I said, well, it splits up. He said, no, it doesn't split up. It goes through both. I said, well, well it uh, bounces or something, comes back through the other note. It goes through both. <laughs> um, I said, yeah, I've heard of this. I said, oh, yeah, that's right. Because uh, particles, can't particles be in two places at once? Deutsch said, he said, they can be in way more than two places at once. <laughs> I, said, um, I said, yeah, I said, maybe, maybe then there's just one extremely versatile particle. You know, no, no, no. He said, that was an idea that Richard Feynman had 20 years ago. Uh, he, said, uh, he said, he gave me this book. He said, uh, he said frankly, we give it a low order of probability these days. <laughs> and anyway, his explanation of this, you know, extraordinary twin slip phenomena, um, is that um, clearly what's happening is that, for example, in our universe, in our universe, the photon goes through slit A. In an adjacent universe, it goes through slit B. What we're seeing there is one universe interfering with another, right? Um, I see you forgive me. I, see bit, uh, I find it a bit flimsy. It's this whole theory of me. These twins and their slits. I said, now, come on, David. I said, have, have, have you yourself actually had any experience, one-to-one -one experience with another universe? Yeah, he said, quite a lot. I said, really? Yeah, like what? And he said, well, um, he was earning a lot of extra money on the side in the field of cryptography. This is the writing of codes. And he, he was telling me, you can't write codes like you used to, like in the water, full Germans. He said, oh, he said code like that would be unraveled in uh, less than a second by a good computer. He said, uh, the only really 100% safe way to hide information is to hide it in another universe. And it's only himself and Texan Whitman, a few others, who didn't actually know the technique of this. And they're picking up like, quite, quite a bit on the side. Anyway, he said, uh, he said it will be, um, it'll all be, um, he said it'll all be cleared up to everyone's satisfaction with the, the building of the quantum computer. He's all out the back now, the new scientist. Uh, quantum computing, the power of parallel worlds, the quantum computer, yeah, because at quark level, um, you know, at quark level, the, the quarks are able to go in and out of all the universes of the multiverse. You see, they, they, they can make it. They can make it through. The wormholes, the sludginess, as we mentioned before, and and. And so, our good Dr. Deutsch in our universe, he's busy building the quantum computer, see? Right, right, in our universe. Now, the next universe along the, along the way is only one nap decision different from this one, right? And so, there's the Dr. Deutsch in there, look alike, seem like, name like, very now, and quadrillions of all these, um, uh, these Dr. Deutsches all building their quantum computers. I mean, you've got to go a hell of a way through the multiverse before you get to a universe which is radically different to this one. But it's all, it's all there, everything that uh, is logical and possible, it doesn't break the laws of physics, it uh, will be somewhere, there'll be that universe somewhere, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but anyway, but I mean, imagine, there's all these uh, Dr. David Deutsches building their quantum computers, and, and uh, then they push the button at the same time, and kazay, they all join up through the multiverse, all these things. I said, well, what happens then then? And he said, well, he said, we'll be able to do computations way beyond the scope of our own universe. He said it'll all be cleared up to everyone's satisfaction with the, 
the building of the quantum computer. He's all about the back now, new scientist, uh, quantum computing, the power of parallel worlds, do you think? The quantum computer, yeah, because at quark level, um, you know, at quark level, the, the quarks are able to go in and out of all the universes of the multiverse, you see, they, they, they can make it, they can make it through, it's a wormhole, it's a spongin, as we mentioned before. And, and, and so, our good Dr. Deutsch in our universe, he's busy building the quantum computer, see? Right, right, in, in our universe. Now, the next universe along the, along the way is only one nap decision different from this one, right? And so there's the Dr. Deutsch in there, look alike, see like, name like, fair in that, and what? And quadrillions of all these, and uh, these Dr. Deutsches all building their quantum computers. I mean, you've got to go a hell of a way through the multiverse before you get to a universe which is radically different to this one. But it's all, it's all there, everything that uh, is logical and possible, doesn't break the laws of physics, it, uh, will be somewhere, there'll be that universe somewhere, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but anyway, but I mean, imagine, it's all these uh, Dr. David Deutsches building their quantum computers. And, and uh, then they push the button at the same time, and kazam! They all join up through the multiverse, all these things. I said, well, what happens then, then? And he said, well, he said, we'll be able to do computations way beyond the scope of our own universe. I said, like what? He said, well, maybe crunching numbers of an incredible order. He said, like, we'll be able to factorise numbers um, way beyond the number of quarks in our universe, for example. <laughs> I, said, I said, David, I said, will this add to the sum of human happiness? And, and, and he gave me the sun grin. He said, uh, he said, well, I think so. He said, uh, he said, mathematicians are human, aren't they? <laughs> to, to be honest, I, thought, I couldn't do that. Could you do that? The multiverse. I can't do that. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't do them after that. I felt really miffed, you know. It's like I've been mega outsupposed by <laughs> So anyway, so when I got back to my little hotel in Oxford, I'm not going down the pub tonight. And I was writing, I was writing notes down. I mean, it's just like, you couldn't hardly believe that you'd heard these things. Oh, all these been useful one day, all these things. There's about ten. So well, actually, I will go down the pub. And, um, <laughs> But I just had a couple of pints, that was all. There's some very interesting people in the pub, actually, not one of them. I had a couple of pints, went back and wrote a, a few more uh, notes in my... But the next morning, I, I had all these bruises um, on the earth, and uh, I thought, I mean, I can't, I couldn't think what this was about, you know, because I would account for my life. Uh, Professor Penrose and uh, dummy notes, I'm down the pub, and a couple of... I mean, I've definitely had been hit by a bus. And then I thought, Oh, I know. In, in a, in a, I know. In a, in a universe not so far from here, another came went down to, to the pub. You know, he got a really interesting company. Oh, and this is interference from another universe. <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> and um, anyway, uh, I, I asked David Deutsch about. Um, what's his name again? About uh, Stephen Hawking. And uh, I, I said, I said, I said, I said, what, what, what did Hawking think of your ideas? Um, David Deutsch said, I don't know. He said, um, he said, Stephen sits on the fence a bit, to be honest. Uh, he said, he, 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 knows, he knows the ideas, he said, I don't know what his opinion is. Uh, I, I don't know. Actually, I was thinking, really, yeah. I, I mean, does that mean, I, I, mean I, 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 I don't know what I think about that. You know, I heard he's the greatest brain on the planet, isn't he? And I, and I had to interview him, you see, so I, I thought, well, in Hawking, I mean, if Hawking, Records on this multiverse. I mean, then, then it'd be worth it, wouldn't it? You say, "Wow, well, you go give it your best day," you know. But maybe not worry about too much at all. And um, the way uh, they they film it, so on Sunday, it's really quite beautiful actually, because we waited for him to go to to be coming to work. He was a bit late. He goes to work sometimes on his own, and that was the, the shot that was wanted. You know, like they say someone's got witty body language. Like <laughs> Professor Hawking's got like, like witty trolley language. You know, he's really he's asked questions with it. And he can rap out, he's got no voice box, so he, he, but he's got this uh, machine, a machine voice. And he goes, Yes, no, fuck off. He goes, <laughs> this is like, like what you say, he runs over your foot. And he, he laughs a lot. Uh, but because he hasn't got vocal cords, it comes out curious. It, uh, it, like, like, okay. <laughs> and, uh, and I love that. Uh, actually, quite similar to the echo of the Big Bang. <laughs> um, and I'll tell you what was uh, quite sweet as well, because I mean, this is what I mean by it's a stunt to interview. Is that you have to send in your questions two weeks in advance, and then he's um, he's typed, he, he's put them all in his computer, you see, and so you ask him a question. And he, 
because it's the right number, and it just plays. Um, in, in fact, it, it plays out of his back, like that. So actually, if you're listening to him, I mean, logically, he's turning around to you, you know, <laughs> like that, but because he was from the TV, uh, I sort of sit there, but I couldn't look at him. You know, like, I mean, he wouldn't have to be there, actually. Uh, but he is, anyway, he played along with that, and to, it, to the, uh, the extent of his abilities, he looked like he was taking an interest in what he was saying. Uh, which he does, he's got little use of um, his uh, eyelids. And his mouth does express curiously, it actually does a bit. Anyway, there we are. That was that. Uh, but the deal was, I was to be allowed to ask him a question of my own, you know, after the questions that they needed for the programme had been asked. Um, it's a good idea having him on the show like that because you get a lot of foreign sales. And um, <laughs> anyway, so uh, we got. He'd undertake it, as long as it, you know, it wouldn't take more than an hour to answer, he would answer my question. Anyway, so my question was this, I said, um, sir, now, I said, are these, these many, many universes of the multiverse, are they all as real as this one seems to me to be? And Professor Hawking said, yes. So they are seekers, that is what you are supposed to suppose. <laughs> and I know, I know for some of you it is difficult. It is going to be difficult. But I suggest you wrestle with it. Because it is what you're supposed to suppose now, alright? There's nothing to do with all that. This is what you, this is it, right? Go on, go on, go on, boom, you know. And me coming, go on, well, walk out of here, ladies and gents of the multiverse. And I do tell you, you will be the happier for it. Just think about it for the moment like this. Let's say all the um, universes of the multiverse are stacked up like that, like, 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 like a huge deck of cards. Look, at the top, there's going to be a universe where everything goes extremely well for everybody and everything concerned, you know? And then there'll be one at the bottom of the deck where everything goes extremely grim over everybody and everything concerned, right? You could call that one heaven if you like, you could call that one hell if you wish to. All we don't know is which universe we're in. It's like a universe competition. We don't know which one we're in, but we get to choose it. We get to define which universe we're in. Get it? Listen, I mean, there's going to be a universe. Listen, there will be a universe where the Bible is a jest book. It's logical, it's possible, it doesn't make the laws of physics to say so, so it is. Oh, dear, sweet, loving, laughing Jesus, let that be our one. There will also be a universe where great playwrights write comedies that you're not meant to laugh at. And I can tell you which universe that is, actually. Listen, this is Ben Johnson speaking to you across the centuries. Recorded here to Rap Johnson saying, As Aristotle says rightly, the moving of laughter is a fault in comedy, a kind of turpitude that depraves some part of man's nature. Commentator here. Um, for Johnson, for Ben Johnson, um, uh, uh, Johnson viewed laughter as always potentially unseemly because it was a sign of disturbed bodily control. <laughs> oh, that bastard! <laughs> no, 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 no. See, see, I mean, the whole, the whole point here, Sigurds, is you... Quantum mechanics clearly tells us that that must be it now. We've got to wind up on all serious drama, right? And it's you, it's you out there who can do that. I mean, I mean don't, don't ask, you know, the poor buggers out here, you know, trying to earn a crust to do that. It's you who's got to work at that, okay? I mean, because, you know, not like um, people who really get off on it. People who get off on serious drama. I'm not talking about students. Students coming along don't matter. We're talking about the people who really do get off on it. And they do, you know. There are them, and they do. And they, I mean, we've got to face it, they are traitors to our universe, quite simply. Because that moment, you know, you know, at the crisis, climax, and the peace, oh, that bit, you know, that bit they get off on. Oh, do you know the name for that? It's catharsis. <laughs> and at that, moment, at, that moment, at that moment, we are losing. We are losing from our universe high-grade quarks at that, that moment. But when you laugh, when the, when the, when the, when the laughter comes in, I mean, really need to suffer. When you're laughing, you are bringing in. You're bringing in high-quality quarks. Uh, in fact, man, wasn't, wasn't that so sad um, that uh, those lesbians abseiling into the House of Commons turned out to be a one-off? 
All lesbians must learn to abseil. You may just be being a grim male endeavour that doesn't feel itself under threat from these five ladies, you know? Well, yeah, what's your answer, John? There's some lesbians here. Thank you very much. Nice speech. Ken Campbell, The Seekers Podcast, was produced and presented by Daisy Campbell and David Bramwell, with kind permission from the Ken Campbell Estate. Music was by Horton Jupiter. It was funded by Arts Council England. Ken Campbell interview with kind permission of Sheridan Thayer.